that's, it, it's an enormous uh, blessing and good fortune for you to be able to have someone like John Dixon. John is um, one of the few people that I get to hear often and, and uh, who I know who really does do the work from the ground up. Most people start you know, just borrowing other people's ideas. John starts from the ground up. His, his study is extraordinarily deep and he's a magnificent communicator. So to have John here is a great honour. And uh, even if you are unable to get a truckload of your friends to come, in terms of our own education um, on what Islam is really saying and, and how pluralism works, uh, you'd be crazy to miss it, unless, of course, you have to, in which case you'd be wise to miss it. Thanks for that, Ian. Um, how about if we pray and then we'll look together at this chapter. Lord Jesus, it's a wonderful thing to meet uh, together in this great university where uh, our minds are stretched again and again and we have the opportunity, even if our lecturers are dud and our tutors are vague, to use the library and um, just to learn and to understand this world that you have made. And we thank you for your word in particular, given to us by your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, uh, which enables us to understand you and what you're doing, where you're taking us, what your plans are, what your character is. We pray now that you would please speak to us uh, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I'm not very good at waiting. Uh, that's a genetic problem. It's not just that I'm an impatient, immature person. It's in my genes. I tried lay-buying something for the first time in my life. I like knives. Um, I, I've been to one or two... I know that I'm, you know, as an Anglican minister in the top 3 or 4% of rich people in the world, but you don't feel like that when you live in Sydney. So I've been into some super, super, super rich houses and I've used their knives and they're just fantastic. You know, if you're working on a fish or you're cutting a tomato or whatever it is, a really good knife. But they cost hundreds of bucks, as I've discovered when I went into a knife shop at Broadway. But I did buy myself a 90-something dollar, was on sale, set of knives and it had a little sharpener thing, which is one of the bonuses, made in China, um, where most knife sets are made, now unless you want to get the ridiculous expensive ones, but it was owned by an Australian company, so I thought that was a good compromise. And I, I tried lay buying it, so I had my pocket money, I put some money down, and I was going to buy it over a few weeks, and I, I did it a couple of times, and then the last time I just said, no, I need it for this weekend, I've got some friends coming for dinner, and so I got the credit card out, and I failed. I was going to try and buy it without using a credit card, and I just was too impatient. The idea of waiting for the, for the great days of using our new knives, and they're quite nice if you come to our place, you're welcome to play with them, and, um, and even to sharpen them if you can. You can. See, waiting, waiting is not a thing that our culture is strong at. Um, it's one that you need to learn, and it's a mark and a characteristic of the Christian. Uh, great things have been done by God, great things have been done by God when he turned us to Jesus, but the best of things lies in the future in terms of our experience. And we are a people who are waiting, eagerly, patiently, and it's our waiting and our hope that the Bible so often says is the thing that brings joy and the capacity to endure misunderstanding and suffering, which is what was happening for these young Christians in the Greek town of Thessalonica. And the way that he speaks of the Christian life is that our hearts are firmly planted in Good Friday, and yet our eyes are on the horizon, waiting for the appearing, the return, the coming of Jesus as he promised. Um, I was um, doing something again about that play, Waiting for Godot, and those poor old tramps who are waiting for someone who in the end doesn't come. 
That won't happen to the Christian because the person who is promised is a person who never ever lies, has no reason to lie, doesn't forget and is marked by his faithfulness. The Lord Jesus can be trusted. Why do we believe he'll come back? It's an absurd idea at one level. We know that the Jewish rabbis in the Talmud will refer to the fact that Jesus says he'll come back but they don't believe it because they say he is a liar. One of the reasons they killed him. Now, of course, unless you're convinced that Jesus Christ is a liar, you really ought to believe he'll come back as he says, as he promises. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Because it does look as if some of the Thessalonians who were keen on the return of Jesus said he's coming back, therefore, and they came to an application and a lifestyle that really was contrary to what God wants of us. But we'll come to that in the second point. What does the Apostle direct us to in this last chapter when he's clarified issues about the return of Jesus? He's got rid of some of the nonsense that's confused him and they're able to get back to the good standard, classic Jesus-type belief in the return of Christ. What do we do while we're waiting? Let me read you verses 1 to 5. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified everywhere, just as it is among you, and that we may be rescued from wicked and evil people, For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will go on doing the the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Beloved, pray for us. In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, he gives further details of what he would like them to pray. One of the interesting things that you see in the letters of the Apostle Paul is a constant request from those who he's teaching and instructing, those often who he led to Christ, for them to pray for him. He assures them of his prayers for them, but again and again and again the Apostle asks for the prayers of these little baby Christians. People who used to spend some time with Mother Teresa were often surprised that when they would ask her to pray for them on the basis that she was such a spiritual person that presumably her prayers got to heaven faster, she would always reply with, yes, and would you please pray for me? Because in the end, you see, prayers, your prayers, even if you think you're not very good at prayer or maybe you've only known Christ for a week, your prayers make a huge difference. We're told specifically in the book of James that the reason why people don't have things is because they don't ask. The Apostle Paul isn't asking these people to pray for him because he thinks it may do them some spiritual good. I've heard that nonsense. Friends of mine have argued that, that prayer doesn't change anything except you. Well, that's a very interesting theory. You just don't find it in the Bible. At least, if it is, I'd like you to shame it. I think the Bible constantly says pray because it makes a difference. If a kid's hungry, he should ask his dad for bread and he'll give it to him. If you want the Holy Spirit, ask for it and you'll receive it. Him, his operations. The Apostle Paul wants him to pray, and not because he doesn't trust God. He says here, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, just before he asked them to pray, he says here that God is faithful. And God is faithful in keeping his promises to answer prayers. So there's a real connection between what God chooses to do or not do in the world and the prayers of his children. Now, like many areas of uh, the internal workings of the universe and God, There are some things that we won't get to the bottom of all the relationships. 
But it's perfectly clear that the Apostle wants you to pray. The Apostle covets the prayers of these young Christians because it makes a difference. You can be at the very forefront of the work of God around the world and here at this university, not by being a speaking head at the front of some organisation, but by being a person of prayer. So what does he ask for? He says, pray for us, and then in verse 1 he continues to give you the reason, or the specifics, so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified everywhere just as it is among you. So he doesn't actually seem to ask for prayers at all for him at this point. He wants the work that he's been entrusted to do to go forward. And literally it says that the word of the Lord may run. It's a lovely picture the Bible has of the word of the Lord running out, hearing from, coming from God and then running across the earth and being effective and making a difference like water in a desert. So he wants the word of the God to run. He doesn't want it to be crash-tackled and taken out of the game. He wants it to have a clear run all the way. He says, pray for that, that the word of God will, will run, it will be effective, it will be fruitful, it will make progress. Pray that it will be glorified. Now that is a weird statement, it's a rare statement in the Bible, that the word of the Lord will be glorified as it is among you. He's talking to that little group in, in the town of Thessalonica that when they heard the gospel they received it. Not as the word of men but as it is the word of God. So it was glorified, the word of God was honoured in the experience of the Thessalonians. At least for some of them because some of the Thessalonians heard it and hated it and organised persecution. So he's saying, pray that the word of God would make progress and when it goes out, people would hear it and receive it as it is the word of the living God. It would be honoured and admired and praised. Acts 13 verse 48, Luke says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. It's a strange thing. It's a rare statement. But to honour and glorify and admire and to advance the word of it. That's the first thing to pray. So see, in a couple of weeks' time when you've got you know, a, a series of just magnificent speakers coming, utterly, totally useless, every one of them, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do his work. Last night I was at a dinner, we had a judge explaining the evidence for the resurrection. I was so excited when he said yes. I'm even more excited that the guy's going to say yes for next week. In the process of saying next, for, well, yeah, I'll be like, see, I need prayer, I can't speak English. Um, you know, it's really exciting when a great speaker says, I'll come. You know, I've danced around the house when, when various times when we get people who have come. But in the end, utterly impotent, weak and useless. It's got to be God that does the work through them. And sometimes you can get seduced by having a good speaker and not therefore pray desperately. Where if you get someone who can barely put words together, you're going to pray. <laughs> Dear God, why do we ask that idiot? Right? If anything happens, it's going to be a miracle. That's true. So it's great when God gives us great people like this to come and speak on good topics. But we need to be people who pray that the word would run and it would be honoured and received and welcomed. Then the Apostle asks for prayer for him. Although I think at this point he prays for the messenger so that the message doesn't get taken out of the game. Uh, you know, if you want to stop a football team, you just kill the 5-8 with one helpful uh, main him in a Christian sort of way. <laughs> so these, the, the Apostle is aware that as he's the main man at that, at, in, in part of God's plans at that moment in history, he says, pray that we may be rescued from wicked and evil people. As he was in Thessalonica and as he was in Berea, the next town he went to, he didn't sort of nearly get beaten up in uh, Athens, but he just got mocked. So he says, pray that we will be rescued from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. 
So there, there are his prayers, or they're the prayers that he asked for himself. Right? Prayers that we can all take part in. He wants these little baby Christians to pray for him, because it will make a difference. Then he turns to pray for them. Interesting, the two main things he prays for, safety and strength. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are going, you are doing and will go on doing the things that we command. This prayer for guarding and strengthening from the evil one. Uh, the apostle knows, as the apostle Peter says, that the devil is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we do need to take seriously what Jesus takes seriously and the Holy Spirit through the apostles takes seriously, which is, if you are a Christian, you have a deadly enemy. And he's happy to work on weaknesses with you for years with a plan in the end to maim you in your thirties. If he can get you to embrace compromise, to learn to be a little careless about areas of obedience, just to set up weaknesses, he's quite happy with that. He's a, he's a long-term planning sort of guy. We need protection from the evil one. You need protection. The strongest, most impressive Christian you know in the world desperately needs protection from the evil one. We're all weak. He is pathetic compared to God. But left alone before him, we'll be seduced and destroyed before we know it. This is the same prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Or deliver us from the evil one. Which is at least as good a translation. It's the prayer for rescue. We live a dangerous life. If you want adventure, you don't have to climb Everest. Just live as a Christian. Live with your eyes open. It's a dangerous adventure to get home. And the opportunity to take part in God bringing others home is really wonderfully exciting. The devil normally works in the Bible through persecution of the church and through false teaching. He's a murderer and a liar, as we saw last week in John 8. There is fundamental works. He's already at work, the evil one, in seeking to destroy the Thessalonians by confusing them about the second coming. That's why the apostle had to write this letter because they were confused about the second coming and confused about one area of living Christianly. So he prays for them that they will be kept safe and that they will be, they will be strengthened, which I take it as probably the prayer in verse 5 as well. How do you get strengthened as a Christian? Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. These are people who already understand something of the love of God, but there's so much more for them to grow and learn. So he's praying that God will take them further on and further in as it says in Ephesians, that they would appreciate and understand and grow in their understanding and appreciation of the love of Christ that passes understanding. So that's his prayer. That's how God will strengthen you. Whatever it is that you or I think we know about the love of Jesus, it's nearly nothing. And the Apostle prays, and I hope you pray for yourself and for those that you know, that you would go further into the love of God and the steadfastness, the rock-hard faithfulness of Jesus. He will never give up on us. He's never there. He's never in a bad mood. We may feel close to him or far from him at various times. He remains utterly consistent. Strength is found in knowing the love of God and the steadfastness of his love. That's his prayer for them. It's a good prayer for us to pray. So that's the first thing we're to be doing while we're waiting to be praying about those things that are clearly to do with the new heaven, the new earth, the things that clearly are to do with forever, the things that are clearly eternal, the things that we are likely to think as a spiritual, to be men and women of prayer. And I'd like to share with you some of the insights of some of the great men and women of the past on prayer. It is my hunch, and I'm not a prophet at this point, uh, it is my 
sense of things that we live in an activist age, even in the church, where we're much better at planning things and doing things than we are just pulling time out and praying. Certainly, and I don't want to project onto the Christian world my weaknesses, but that's certainly true of me. I'm weakest, whereas a Christian I need to be strongest. The single thing I find hardest to do with any regular discipline is to be praying. I don't mean on night before panic situations where you can't help but pray. I mean, I get caught up in a gripping enough movie and I'm in danger of trying to pray. You know, just to sort of, so you do that sort of, you know, no, no. Or you watch a sports match and go, oh, Lord, no, no. We're not I have prayed about sports matches where, where, where the goodies have been weak and the baddies have been strong. And I just ask, Lord, if, if anyone's going to have any luck, can we have the luck? I'm not asking for much. I'll tell you about some of the answers to prayer on those sometimes. They're great. They're good fun. But irrelevant. But in the really serious things, prayer is often hard work. It's pictured in the Bible sometimes as labour, wrestling. It's, you often they use sweat words about it. Sometimes it's instinctive and natural and the most joyful thing that you'll ever do. Often it's hard work. And the deep, rich joy of fellowship with God is found as you discipline yourself. It's a bit like going sailing sometimes. If there's a headland that's blocking the wind, it may be hard, slow work to get out. But once you get out past a certain point, the wind picks you up and away you go. Prayer often starts off slow and hard. If you give up at that point, we often miss the fellowship that lies on the other side, apart from usefulness. Let me read you some of these great quotes. Robert Moody McShane, a man who's dead by the time he was 30, and but a marvellous man. He says, what a man... And these are all kind of pre the 70s, so they all use the word man for all of us. So you'll need to forgive them, like you will almost all the other great literature of the world. But here we are, Robert Mulchin. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Okay? What a person is on their knees before God, that you are and no more. No matter what reputation you have because of outward gifts that you may have, what we are on our knees before God is the great test. Samuel Chadwick says, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless Bible studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion, prayerless evangelism. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. I think that does pick up some of the tone and concerns of the Bible. Andrew Murray, his his quote is written for you on the outline. The man, the person who mobilises the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelisation in history. By far the most important work is the work where we're crying out to God, saying, God, we are weak, we are impotent, we can't do this. We've organised the best thing we can, we've, we've, we've been as sensitive as we can, we've got the best speaker we can, but God, it's got to be you. And according to Luke 11, there's a very clear tie between the prayers of God's children and the giving and work of the Spirit. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, what a legend that guy is, says this, I would rather teach one person to pray than ten people to preach. Now this is a guy who in his day was known as the Prince of Pulpiteer, a magnificent preacher. Um, I've got to avoid going down and telling all sorts of great stories about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A magnificent preacher, a terrifying genius. He had never spent one week in a Bible college. And yet um, people around the world learn from him still today from his sermons. He also was asked a number of times why it was that he was such a great preacher, and he was. Had a church of thousands 
of both the most highly educated and the poorest of the people in, in London. Majestic, extraordinary. And every time he was asked, what has made you such a good preacher? His answer was the same. My people pray for me. My people pray for me. By which I'm not saying, if you think this is a crap talk, that's your fault. (laughs) You didn't pray enough for it. Um, But in your local church, you might like to think, how much do you spend anywhere near as much time praying for the preacher as they work away in their study, as she does the Bible study and does the work, before they get up to preach? as we do talking about it uh, from a human point of view. Um, so there are some great quotes, I think, which remind us that we've, we need to ponder this question about prayer. What do we do while we wait? We pray for the kingdom to grow, for the name of Christ to be honoured, for forward movement. You can, literally, you can be involved in changing the world. You can make a difference for the gospel work of Zola in Mongolia by praying for her. You can be involved in people being saved there by praying that the Holy Spirit would work as the Gospels preached. You can be involved in God's great work in China by praying. I mean, no matter what else you might, you, know, you might hate your course. You might think it's pointless. You've chosen the wrong course. My life is pointless rubbish. Pray. And you'll be involved in making a difference for eternity. You may feel joy as you pray. You may not. But I'll tell you what, on the other side of Judgment Day, you will see the result of your work. As Jesus teaches in Luke 16 about money, so about prayer. You can even make a difference in deepest, darkest New Zealand where there are people doing missionary work even from Australia. We need missionaries here. But you know, you can make a difference by praying. Whether it be progress in the gospel or progress in godliness, prayer lies at the absolute heart of it. What do we do while we're waiting? We pray. Well, let's look at the second thing here. The other work that we're to do, the work of prayer, verse 6 on, picks up the work of work. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle. There is a problem with the Thessalonian church, although it's a great church and a church that, you remember, really excites the apostle because of its growing love and its growing faith. There's a problem with the church about the question of work. Some of the people are being idle and just being busybodies and wasting their time. But the deeper problem is actually in a slightly better translation of that word, idle. Let's have a look at verse 6. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in, literally, who are living in undisciplinedness. Now the reason why the translation he will translate as idleness is because the, un- the fact that they are undisciplined shows itself in idleness. And the words are quite similar, so it goes either way. But I think that word is best translated as being undisciplined. Some of the more rigorous translations like the New American Standard will will give that to you. Who are living in undisciplinedness and not according to the tradition that they have received from us. And on he goes. And he says in verse 7, we were not idle when we were with you. The Christian life, as you know, is a disciplined life. Now, I don't imagine that makes, oh, yeah, I love disciplined living. Now, bring it on. That's, that's exciting. I mean, if you're a Christian, you are, you know, the most common word for you in the Bible is that you're a disciple of Jesus, which means that you are a person who's come under the discipline of the Master. That's what a disciple is. You can hear it in the Word. You're a learner. And freedom, the freedom that we find as a Christian, according to John 8, is found not in just knowing the truth, which is what I thought it said for years, and I looked more closely at John 8, 31 to 36. It's in knowing and doing. The freedom of the Christian is not found in knowing the truth. 
The freedom is found in the doing of it. The being disciplined. The changing your life to bring it into tune and harmony with the teaching of the Master. The Christian life is a life of discipline. But you know that the life of discipline leads to freedom. Uh, at the moment, I'm getting my sentences out, which is an improvement on a few minutes ago. But that I wasn't always like this. It might surprise you. I didn't come out of the womb saying, I'm here, let's go, let's talk, let's argue. You know, that wasn't how it happened. I had to learn to speak, like I'm learning to speak Mandarin now. I spent six months, and I think I can say hello properly. I think I've got the second part right, the loopy part. So I'm looking up my second word now. And the, the way you learn to do something, which you can then do freely, like talk, right, is by learning the discipline. There was a time when you had to learn to read, and it was hard work. There was a time you can play a musical instrument, you had to concentrate. What's that? Every good boy does it. That's a G, isn't it? Right? And then you, you do the hard work, and then you can read it without even thinking. And the freedom and the joy comes from the life of discipline. The person who won't go through discipline stays a baby and never knows that sort of liberty. So it's in the disciplined life that we find freedom. And the problem with these Christians is there's an area where they're being undisciplined or unruly or out of step with what God has said, and it's the area of work. They're just being Greeks of that time, of current Greeks. Although the... Yeah, the, the Greeks do have a different... They seem to love their relaxation uh, quite a lot, which is kind of nice. At least according to Zorba the Greek, which is my only knowledge of Greek culture. But um, the Greeks had a view of work which was unlike the view of the Bible. And it seems that these guys simply had not allowed Jesus to reteach them in the area of work. Because some people think that Jesus wants to speak to that areas of obvious personal morality, truthfulness, whether or not you swear, which obviously we don't, um, sexual morality, questions maybe of generosity to the needy, not realising that the Bible often speaks about the big things of life, the things that really shape your life, like the balance between work and rest in your life. That is a matter of godliness. It's, in, it's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments is about the balance between work and rest. There's a certain amount you expected to work, there's a certain amount you expected to rest. And these Greeks are just being Greeks. The other possibility that some scholars think is actually the reason why they're being idle and not working is because they think the second coming might come at any moment. Why on earth would you go to work as an accountant if you think that Jesus might be coming back this afternoon? Far better, for example, to pray or to share the gospel, excuse me, although these guys just seem to be hanging around going, he's coming back. <laughs> just looking at the horizon. That's not what he's... So let me read you the rest of it. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that you received from us. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Most of our learning is by watching and imitating. We were not idle when we were with you and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. This was not because we didn't have that right but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now to such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So you see the problem? There's a bunch of people who are just being lazy, idle, not working. 
either because they're just worldly or because they've got a false spirituality. The false spirituality may come from the second coming, therefore, why would you work? That's not what the Bible says anywhere. Or it may be because of just being Greeks. Because the Greeks, marvellous culture that it was and is, have a very different view of work to what God has. Therefore, it doesn't matter if that's their culture or they may even blame it on their genes. There are things that they need to bring that under the, the loving discipline of the God who made us. The Greeks on the whole thought that work was a demeaning thing. And the mark of the good life, the mark of the blessed, the mark of the educated, the mark of the privileged, they didn't work. That's why, in the end, they often became so immoral. Leave people without work, boredom, boredom always leads to trouble. In fact, the Greek writer Homer said this, that the gods hated humans so much that they invented work as a punishment. Okay? They actually invented it. They hated us. So they, invent work as a punishment. Malicious. Now if you have that view of work, who wants to work? That's what slaves are for or the lowest classes are for. Anyone who's a half-decent human being doesn't work. Anyone with the opportunity seeks a patron who'll look after them. These Thessalonian Christians were Greeks. It seems very likely they had not got over that Belief. And maybe the fact that they now knew they were God's children in God's world, heading off soon to the new heaven, new earth, only made that worse. But when you come to the Bible, it is such a different query, a question about work, isn't it? And the teaching about work is not sort of an accidental thing that comes in just in Colossians 3 or Ephesians 6 or a couple of verses in Ecclesiastes or something like that where there are specific references to work. It's built into the whole fabric of the word of God. So when you meet God in Genesis 1, what is he? Well, you might think he's the creator. In the beginning, God created. So he's creating, he's making things. The other way to look at it is he's working. Because what happens at the end of that account in Genesis 1? On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. You meet God the creator, and he's a worker. He's not idle. And what are human beings made? We are made in his image. We are made in his likeness. Therefore, if God is introduced to us as the creator, that will mean that creating things, whether it be a new, you know, new chips for computers or new chips to eat or works of art, we are by nature people designed to make things, to create things. We're a human tool maker, that's what we are. We are workers as well. You are designed to work. Adam and Eve were not sitting in some boring club med in the Garden of Eden, although if you're feeling tired, that's what you might think it is. There was work to do in the garden. And Eve was given a job to work with Adam as workers together. Beside the marriage bed, there were not only slippers, but Wellington work boots for the garden, for both of them. They were to work side by side. You are designed to work. It's part of your God-likeness, part of being his image. It is not a thing to be avoided. It's a thing to be embraced. Now, our culture has got all sorts of funny uh, beliefs about work, depending on what part of the culture will depend on your view of work, but at least get this part right. Work is a good thing. Now, Genesis 3 has been damaged. The work that the humans had to do because of sin will become hard. 
It'll become sweaty. It'll often feel just like an economic necessity rather than a good thing in and of itself. Jesus comes to us in the Gospels as a worker, particularly in John's Gospel. It is, of course, a carpenter who finishes up nailed to the cross. He spends most of his life working in the ordinary work sphere and only the last three years doing what seems so obviously spiritual to us. But like a Christian, Jesus worshipped as he worked. As he made tables and chairs, whatever else he made there, he worshipped as he worked. And then he speaks of himself in John 4 and other places as a worker with a job to do. So, the Bible's view of work is very, very different to the Greek view of work. But the Bible does not want you to be a workaholic. You'll get often rewarded in churches if you work too hard and be affirmed, etc. But the Bible's very keen that you rest, that you work and rest. And the command that actually speaks about work is really in order to protect the Jews from working too hard. That they were to have one, they were to trust God that they didn't need to work as hard as they might have been frightened that they had to. They were to rest. And if you're working so hard that you can't rest, even if it's a combination of study and then employment in order to pay things through, if you're working so hard that you can't rest, both physically and spiritually, that you're working so hard you simply can't get to church or you can't read your Bible, you're probably working sinfully hard and you need to change. This principle is built into the creation. So these guys, though, their problem is they're not working. And what the Apostle says in verse 10 is a very important phrase. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. So if you know a Christian person, and I've got friends who are a bit like this, who are so spiritual that they don't work. In fact, this one or two of my friends actually mock Christians who do work. But then they often depend on the charitableness of the Christians who at times they attack for being unspiritual. What the Bible says to them is, if you won't work, don't eat. And it actually says to us Christians who are working, we are not to support them. We're actually at some level to withdraw fellowship from them. I take it when people like that ask for my help and ask perhaps even for a meal, or often when I'm with them, I'll take them somewhere to get a meal. So I, don't think. I think the Bible says, don't do that. If they won't work, they ought not to eat. Not if they can't work. Frankly, I'm happy to pay much more tax if there are people who can't work and who need sort of community help. That's fine. But I'm not happy to pay tax for people who choose not to work. They ought to starve. Right? Yeah. Sorry, it just sounds like you're saying that if people are going out and maybe wanting to spend their lives telling others who are about God, that, I mean, not in the way that you do in a church, but in other ways, that that wouldn't be work. Now, I think about, yes, thank you for that. If, I was, if it sounds like I'm saying that was a dumb thing to sound like, and uh, on behalf of you all, thank you. Um, no, the Bible does have a category which the Apostle actually um, hints at but doesn't uh, work on much at verse 9. So he says, when he arrived in Thessalonica, he preached and worked. Unlike me, all I do is preach and play. But he says, verse 9, this was not because we don't have the right. So it's perfectly right for Christians to be supported by the generosity of other Christians or out of perhaps if they're, if they're very rich and they've got a family you know, assets just to Stop doing ordinary economic work to make money. That's okay. But these guys are not working for the kingdom. They're just being idle, loafing around, calling themselves spiritual. So thank you. Is that, is that reasonably clear what I meant? Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, 
it's important that you see this. It's not saying if you can't get a job, you ought to start. It's saying if you choose not to work. I've got a member of my extended family who chose to live up in the beautiful far north coast. He's a particular sort of pastry cook from a particular background. And surprise, surprise, there are not many jobs for that sort of exotic pastry cook at Warhope. Really. So for years, he freeloaded on other people who worked. He ought to have got a job. Anything. When most of us human beings were hunter-gatherers a few, you know, a few hundred, few thousand years ago, you don't go to the career guidance person, oh, you don't like hunting or gathering? Well, don't you work then. No, it doesn't. A certain part of work is just a question of putting food on the table. And this nonsense, if I can't get a job that's just like I want, I won't work. And other people who work can pay taxes to keep me. That's just a form of unconscious theft. So Christians are happy to pay tax and happy to give to those who can't get work. But there's nothing spiritual about the idol. It's okay if you're getting paid as I don't. I I don't work. I get set free from having to earn a living so that I can do other stuff. Um, Particularly, that's great. It's an unbelievable privilege. Well, let's bring this to an end, shall we, friends? The concern is that we don't, between the time when Jesus comes back, we don't stop working. Christians are known as honest, hard workers. So if you have a part-time job, you should be arguably one of their best employees. It may mean that at times you say, listen, no, I won't work Sunday night. And if that means I'll lose my job, so be it. I'll trust God for that. But often what happens with Christians is they work so hard, so honestly, that they will often happily rework the roster to keep you. If not, trust God. But we have to be working while we wait. All life belongs to God. To bring this to some sort of a conclusion, we're anchored both in the great work of Christ in the past and the great work of Christ to come. We talked about the string in a musical instrument. It needs the double anchoring or it does not produce music. So it is with the Christian. Thoroughly anchored. Many of you, when you go to the Lord's table or whatever brand you go to, in the wood of the Lord's table in various different parts of the, the family, there are these words, until he comes. It's a brilliant. Sometimes Christians come up with the most brilliant stuff. It's, it's stolen from 1 Corinthians, but you go up to eat the bread and the wine that speak to you of the first coming, the death of Jesus. And you see on the communion table, until he comes, because it reminds you, even as we look back, we look forward. We're only doing the memory meal until we actually see him face to face. So we need that double anchoring and while we're waiting we do the double work. Prayer and ordinary labour. They are the two things picked up here. I don't know how your balance is going. Whether or not you work so hard that you never pray or whether or not you pray so hard that you're late for work. I think the Bible is saying let's get it right. There are opportunities to pray with the EU Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon. That may be perhaps the most important thing that you can do at university is to meet and pray that God would come and do his work here at this union. Let me finish with a comment from Martin Luther, a great German genius. I'll translate it for you into English. Uh, let me just see if I go. Um, Luther said we should live, now listen to this, Luther says we should live as if Jesus Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is returning tomorrow. Right? Imagine the, the wonderful spiritual tension that would put us under. As if he died just yesterday, so the death is still fresh, Today is Resurrection Day and tomorrow he returns. Or you might like to make that even more intense. Live as if he died this morning, rose at 12 and is returning sometime this afternoon. 
Now we know it might be maybe a little longer than that. But that's where we live. Caught between these wonderfully two great events of Jesus. Uh, well, thanks, Ian, uh, for uh, your three-week series on Two Thessalonians. Uh, I have certainly learned a lot about that book, uh, and I'm sure we all have. Uh, would you show your appreciation to Ian now?